Welcome to the fourth podcast in the Pain Coach series. These podcasts address the FDA's Opioid Analgesic REMS Education Blueprint. Listen as Dr. Catherine Galuzzi, professor and chair of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine's Department of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine, and Dr. Keila Herr, Kelting Professor of Nursing and Associate Dean of Faculty at the University of Iowa College of Nursing, discuss the fundamentals for understanding opioid use disorder and screening tools to identify patients at risk of developing OUD and patients who have signs of OUD. So, Kate, let's start by discussing the neurobiology of OUD, or what we call the addictive cycle. Kate, can you explain this briefly? You know, this is unfortunately a physiologic phenomenon, um, and I think it's important for us to remember addiction is actually a change in the brain it's a process by which the brain is actually changed. So if we think about the brain, we know that the mu opioid receptors are widely distributed in the brain and other parts of the body, as we've already noted, the GI tract, which is why we get constipation. But the areas of the brain that are most invested with mu opioid receptors that would be subject to the mu agonism of opioids are the periaqueductal gray, and that area actually serves for opioid analgesia. The unfortunate thing about the periaqueductal gray is it lives right next door to the nucleus accumbens, which is part of the limbic system, and that is the pleasure center in the brain. So certain individuals who develop or experience analgesia from opioids who have the disease of opioid use or substance use disorder may actually activate the nucleus accumbens and develop euphoria. So these individuals are very vulnerable to not just the feeling of relief of pain, but they are feeling relaxation, relief of anxiety, uh, and as I said, euphoria. And that can lead to problematic behavior, meaning that the individual now is seeking the opioid not because they need pain relief, but because they need the medication to feel good. So it begins with binging and intoxication uh, with the agent, and it could be a prescription opioid, alcohol, cocaine, etc. And they have this rewarding or euphoric effect. And as the disorder progresses, they get to a second stage of unfortunately having to attempt to avoid withdrawal because of the negative effect of that. And um, we've already talked about craving. And in essence, the definition of substance use disorder has craving and compulsion as a big part of the problem. So again, it's, it's actually perturbations in the brain that are affected in individuals with this problem. So Kate, what that emphasizes is that OUD is a disease. There are mechanisms involved that are beyond the patient's control, not necessarily a choice that they're making, but a drive that's related to the neurobiology. Absolutely. And there's that other C word, control and craving and compulsion. Those are really the hallmarks. 
and I think the question is, you know, who is most vulnerable to opioid misuse or, or OUD? And we now know that it's people who have underlying low hedonic tone. These are people who have difficulty experiencing pleasure. Um, I've had patients who've said, I have to have the opioid. It's the only time I feel normal. It's the only time I feel good. You know, that is a problematic behavior. Other people who are vulnerable are people who have psychiatric comorbidities. Uh, we know that 19% of the people in the country who have mental health disorders receive almost 50% of the prescribed opioids. So this is a problem that we have to be very alert to in everyone. And again, hopefully less so in senior citizens, but we have to be alert to it for everyone. So given that OUD is a disease, are there ways that we should communicate with patients and caregivers? Well, words matter. We have to be really careful that we don't stigmatize patients. Um, and we've already talked about the reality of tolerance to the effect of these medications and the fact that individuals may become physically dependent upon them. And tolerance and physical dependence are listed in the DSM-5 criteria for opioid use disorder, but they don't apply in a patient who is taking the medication as directed and who is meeting functional goals and getting good benefits from the medication. But aberrant and problematic behaviors like craving and so forth are things that we're really looking at as potentially giving us the idea that the individual is using the medication for something other than pain relief. So we could go over the substance use disorder criteria, which is from DSM-5. And basically, uh, the official criteria are the first ones are tolerance and withdrawal, which again, not valid if the person is taking the opioid as prescribed. But I'm going to talk about the C's now, loss of control which represents using larger amounts for longer periods of time than needed, or the inability to cut down or control the use of the medicine, uh, increased preoccupation or time spent using or recovering from the medication, and then craving and compulsion. And the other criteria in DSM-5 is use despite negative consequences, and negative really equates to harm. You know, what is the harm of using these medications to the individual? Is there a problem at work? Are there problems with relationships or school? Social issues? Are people reducing their activities, their work time? Are they experiencing physical harm, physical hazards? Are they experiencing physical or psychological harm? So these are the criteria that uh, DSM-5 wants us to look at when we're considering a patient who has possibly risk for opioid use disorder. And if we were to score these, again, somebody taking medications as directed, we would not count tolerance or withdrawal. But if we count loss of control, 
and used to spy negative consequences, the things I talked about. If they have two to three of them, they have mild substance use disorder. If they have four or five, they have moderate substance use disorder. So severe substance use disorder would be indicated on DSM-5 as a score greater or equal to six. These are patients that we need to seriously think about getting into some form of therapy and helping them to withdraw from the medication and getting on something that will be safe for them. So Kate, I want to just clarify because our audience might be confused of the differences between substance use disorder and opioid use disorder. Can you clarify those two diagnoses? Well, any patient who becomes compulsive, losing control, use of a substance uh, for a reason other than that for which it's prescribed, despite its causing harm, could be considered a substance use disorder patient. This could be alcohol, this could be benzodiazepines, this can be nicotine, uh, it could be cocaine. So individuals who have those criteria of compulsion, craving, using the substance despite its causing harm are considered substance use disorders. Opioid use disorder patients are patients with substance use disorder. Their substance happens to be opioids. Excellent. That's a great clarification. So are there known characteristics that increase patients' risk of opioid use disorder? Um, as I mentioned, this idea of anhedonia, people who have difficulty experiencing pleasure or people who already are using other substances like cocaine or people who are quote-unquote addicted to cigarettes would be patients that we would be concerned may have increased risk for developing this problem of opioid use disorder. And there are other risk factors that have been identified and incorporated into some of the screening tools that we have. So I think this would be a good time to segue to talk about the opioid risk tool um, or other screening tools to help identify patients that are at risk for OUD. Well, I like the opioid risk tool because, you know, it's built on Lynn Webster's ORT, which um, actually broke down differences between genders, etc. This tool is much more streamlined. And part of why I really like it is it was developed and underwent sensitivity and specificity testing right here in Philadelphia by <laughs> Martin Cheadle and Peggy Compton. Would you like to take the opioid risk tool? Well, yes. Let me be the patient. I'm going to test you, Keila. Okay. Okay. And I'm not going to tell you the truth. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to make it interesting. Oh, let's make it interesting. Okay. So I'm going to administer this test to you, Dr. Herr, because I want to make sure that if we do decide to prescribe an opioid, that we will be able to keep you safe while you're using that. So please try to answer as truthfully as possible. Okay. Dr. Herr, do you have a family history of substance abuse? For example, alcohol? No, I don't have any family members that I know of that abuse alcohol. Okay. How about illegal drugs? Any family members who have used illegal drugs? Well, I'd say none that I know of. 
What about prescription drug abuse? And what I mean by that is using a prescription drug that was not prescribed for you or for a reason other than the one it was prescribed for. Well, my uncle got in trouble for borrowing medication from my dad when he had back problems. Hmm. So borrowing medications. Okay, well, I'm going to score you on that. Now we turn to you and your personal history of substance use. Do you have a history of problems with alcohol? Well, I wouldn't say problems, but I do have an occasional social drink with friends. What about illegal drugs, Dr. Herr? Never used them. Okay. Prescription drug abuse. I always follow the prescription to the letter. You don't misuse them at all? No. All right. This is a personal question. Please don't take this the wrong way, but are you between age 16 to 45? I am not. What about psychological diseases? Do you have anyone in your family or have you ever had any struggles with bipolar disease, schizophrenia, attention deficit disorder, or obsessive compulsive disorder? I have not had these issues, but my uncle had bipolar schizophrenia. Hmm. And Dr. Hur, this is the last question. Thinking about yourself, do you have a problem or any family members have a problem of depression? Nope. We're all pretty glass half full almost all the time. Well, I have very good news. Your score is two, which indicates a low risk for future opioid use disorder. But you're only one point away from being high risk. So I think, you know, our audience can see how easy this test is. Mm -hmm. And again, a score of three or higher is where you would begin to be concerned that the individual may be at risk for opioid use disorder. And you may or may not feel comfortable treating that individual because of that. Mm -hmm. So it was an easy screening tool to administer. And one thought that I had maybe to share with the audience related to many of the recommendations of steps that should be done before initiating opioid use, like urine screens, contracting, screening for risk. I think um, your patient reaction is going to be highly dependent on the way this is presented. And I think if a clinician establishes these practices, these screening practices, has recommended best practice to assure that their patients receive the best care possible and that these are screens that are done with every patient that you work with who is going to be using opioids. It takes away the stigma and, you know, people feeling like you don't believe them or trust them and can be presented in a way to create a positive relationship um, that then can help you to move forward with a, a safe, effective treatment plan. I agree. I think that having a therapeutic relationship with your patient based on trust and mutual respect and understanding is, is really the key to being able to, especially in cases of, of chronic pain, achieve analgesia for our patients and improve their function. Great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about diagnosing OUD. So what you talked about with the opioid risk tool is a screener. Mm -hmm. um, it's not diagnostic. 
So what thoughts are there for clinicians? So I think the DSM-5 criteria that we discussed earlier is really where we would be making this assessment of the patient and, and feeling that the patient may have opioid use disorder. We certainly would have to look very carefully at the patient and determine that, you know, again, does this patient need a referral to a treatment center? Um, do I feel comfortable making this diagnosis and or do I feel comfortable treating this individual? But again, I think the manifestation of harm and continued use coupled with craving and compulsion, uh, it, it really does bespeak the diagnosis of opioid use disorder. So in the DSM-5 criteria, there's also a judgment about severity of the behaviors. Right. Is that something that should inform decisions about treatment or referral? I think that is really at the discretion of the clinician. Does the clinician feel comfortable treating this person or not? Um, and I think that as soon as you assess the fact that the patient may have substance use disorder, it should immediately trigger your decision about whether you're going to be able to intervene effectively with the right medications or whether you think the patient needs to have a referral for treatment or to a pain management specialist. Yeah, that makes sense. So for patients that are diagnosed with OUD, what are the treatment options that are available? Well, you know, we've mentioned naloxone, which is used for alcohol abuse, et cetera, which is a, a potential. What most people are using, of course, is uh, buprenorphine. The thing about buprenorphine is that if you're using it for pain, you don't need a waiver. But if you're using buprenorphine to treat opioid use disorder, you need to be trained and you need to be very aware of how this medication can be used. Remember that there may be other things that can be useful as well, like psychological or psychosocial interventions. Cognitive behavioral therapy may be very, very useful for the patient. And yeah, I think that the most important thing is, is how comfortable are you with using these medications? For example, methadone could be used for the treatment of opioid use disorder, but it's really only to be accessed in federally regulated opioid treatment programs, and it, it's not indicated to be prescribed by a healthcare provider for treatment of opioid use disorder. So, you know, there are options out there, but I think for most primary care providers, having the backup of treatment centers, referral centers is very important. And what I, what I would like to tell the audience is that there are a number of treatment and referral centers that you can find from ASAM or from SAMHSA and also the AAAP, which is addiction psychiatry. These are all good referral sources for finding treatment centers near you so that you can get help with this because this is a very difficult problem to manage especially if your patient has ongoing pain because you want to be able to give analgesia to the patient, but at the same time, we need to keep our patients safe. Excellent. This is a wonderful podcast and primer on issues related to addiction medicine. Kate, um, do you have some main points from this podcast that you would like to share as takeaways for the audience? My main point is that mu agonism is 
a wonderful option for pain management in patients who don't get relief from other forms of therapy, pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic. But the areas of the brain that are invested with mu opioid receptors, unfortunately, are very close to pleasure centers in the brain and also are heavily invested in the respiratory centers of the brain. So opioids can be problematic, not just in causing respiratory depression or respiratory failure or arrest, but they can also be problematic in precipitating the disease of opioid use disorder. So we really need to treat these patients very cautiously. We need to be versed in some of the screening tools that we have. And ideally we have members of our community who can help us to maintain these patients in a safe environment when they do need treatment for the problem of opioid use disorder. Many thanks, Kate, and to our listeners. Thank you for joining us. This brings us to the close of our final podcast in the Pain Coach series. Please stay tuned for the Pain Coach live meetings that will continue the education with case-based learning and role-play demonstrations. Thank you for listening.